Hello, I'm Billy Lennon, and you're listening to the Cleveland Review of Books podcast. Today, I'm talking with Cameron Alexa Carter about her piece, That Which We Call Ecstasy, on Artemisia Gentileschi's Mary Magdalene's. We discuss gender dynamics during the Italian Renaissance, masculine and feminine uses of color in portraying Mary Magdalene, proto-feminism, and public-facing art history writing in the 21st century. I also mispronounced Gentileschi's name many times, for which I dearly apologize. Cameron Alexa Carter is a black poet and assemblagist from Chicago. She is a founding co-editor of Emergent Literary, a journal for black and brown artists, and has an MA from the University of Chicago. Her work has appeared in 68 to 05, Bennington Review, Torch Literary Arts, Puerto del Sol, Voicemail Poems, and elsewhere. You can find her online at CameronAlexaCarter.com. Hi, welcome to another episode of the Cleveland Review of Books podcast. Uh, today I'm talking with Camera Alexa Carter about her piece, That Which We Call Ecstasy, on Gentileschi's Mary Magdalene's. Cameron, how's it going? Good, I'm doing well. How are you today? I'm doing all right. Um, Good. Was enjoying going back through your piece. It's pretty rare that we'll... We we don't do a lot of art history, but if it's really good, it's we're ha- we're happy to publish it. And this was definitely a change up from a lot of the stuff we published. And mm-hmm. um, I know Alana Pakros, uh, one of our editors, had a great time working with you. So just to kind of like, uh, on a basic level, get into this: um, Who is Artemisia Gentileschi? And could you speak a little bit about her legacy or like the conditions she was working under? Yeah, absolutely. So I will say, first off, that it's funny that you say this is different from what y'all usually publish, because this is different from what I usually write. I am not by any means an art historian, and um, I usually stick to to other subjects. And so this was very new for me. Um, So I'm by no means an expert on her. But um, a wonderful Italian painter. Um, the legacy has really, I think that she's um, gained more notoriety lately because there have been a lot of feminist um, critiques that have come out more recently about her work um, that I think uh, were buried in a lot of ways um, throughout the time that she was painting. She was one of the very few female painters of her time working with this subject matter. And so I think her legacy is really getting um, some new light shed on it in an exciting way recently. Um, You know, she did a lot of religious paintings. One of the paintings that I really love um, that's actually not a Mary Magdalene is Judith Slaying Holofernes. Um, And it's this amazing kind of in meteorized shot of Judith holding the head um, and the neck of Holofernes. And I think that working with biblical subjects is always really interesting because you get to add another layer of meaning onto it. And that was something that she was really skilled at um, because that painting was also sort of a self-portrait in a way of her like slaying her rapist, basically. Um, And so, yeah, there's a lot there. And I'm excited to see that her legacy is is getting some new light shed on it recently. And um, 
yeah, feminists are doing amazing work with, um, you know, their, their critical work around her. So yeah, it's great. Yeah. And so she was working, like living, working Italian Renaissance. Mm -hmm. Yes. Okay. Was she painting like publicly or was she anonymously producing these works? So it wasn't anonymous. Her father was actually a painter. And so there were a lot of, she was never painting anonymously, but her work did, I would say was buried at the time, um, more so than some of her other male contemporaries, um, which is why I think a lot of her work has gotten a resurgence because at the time, you know, even though she was painting under her own name, that was partly why a lot of her work was not championed in the way that it has been now. Um, and so, you know, she was, she was painting under her own name and, you know, like I said, one of the few female painters at the time, but no, she, she didn't receive a lot of recognition probably because of that. Yeah. If she was painting anonymously, she probably would have received a lot more um, recognition and championing of her work, but. Mm -hmm. And could you speak a little bit about um, her male contemporaries? I know you mentioned Caravaggio and Rubens. Um, yeah. Did they recognize her at all? Um, or was she truly siloed? I think she was incredibly siloed. Um, I don't know a lot about the ways their paths may or may not have crossed. Um, I, especially those particular two, um, like I said, I'm I'm not yeah. an art historian, so. Um, <laughs> But I will say that I do not believe she had male contemporaries that were supportive of the work that she was doing um, at the time. I don't think so. I would have to ask someone who's <laughs> a little more knowledgeable than me, but. Yeah. So obviously there's a rich history of like portrayals of Mary Magdalene, mm -hmm. um, who, you know, had a special relationship with Christ depending on who you ask right <laughs> so one big thing you get into in the piece is how like male artists like those who I mentioned go about portraying Mary Magdalene mm -hmm. and in Gentileschi's case the painting that she produced as you say is something that only a woman could have made Mm -hmm. um, could you talk a little bit about how like the gendered portrayals of each and, and how they how they differ how that yeah. reflects the gender of the absolutely. artist absolutely absolutely I think that um you know the the Pope Gregory idea of Mary Magdalene as this um sort of reformed sinful woman um you know was so such a potent narrative for so long and still persists into the present and so I think a lot of the portrayals of Mary Magdalene in art have been a penitent Mary Magdalene um you know a figure who has moved on from her sinful ways and is begging for the forgiveness um of God and I think that because that has been the primary narrative, there aren't a lot of works by male contemporaries of Gentileschi who portray a Mary Magdalene that is shameless in a certain way. And I think that her work really does that. I think that, you know, she has all of these different paintings of her um, from 
melancholia to, um, you know, to penitence, and she does include penitence. But I think that ecstasy is a great example of the ways in which her work um, shows variance across the spectrum of emotion. Whereas I think that in, you know, works like Caravaggio and Rubens, it's very much so this is a woman who is a former sinner, and that's her primary identifier um, as a figure. And so I think that one thing that I just love about Gentileschi's work is that she portrays Mary Magdalene across all these different affective valences, you know, not just penitence, not just sin, but also joy and, you know, melancholy. And, you know, if you look at the face of the figure in this particular painting, Mary Magdalene in Ecstasy, that ecstasy, you know, is tinged with joy, but also sadness. It's tinged with that that former sinner um, aspect, but it's also tinged with like this relief almost. If you look at her face closely, it looks like she's feeling some sort of relief, which is interesting. Um, and so, yeah, I think there are a lot of differences in terms of affect in the way that they're visually portrayed between some of her male contemporaries and her. Did you mention there's also a different in like the color palette they use? Mm -hmm. Like she uses like whites and they heavily focus on like dark colors and like red. Or... Yes, absolutely. So especially the Caravaggio, you know, his tenebrism, that contrast of light and dark, that technique that he often uses um, was definitely a way that he portrayed Mary Magdalene in his version um, of the painting. And for Gentileschi, the colors are still muted, but they're almost more pastel, that purple and that goldenrod yellow um, and the whites. I think that the dark, deep red, um, the blood red, you know, of the Caravaggio just has a very, very different tone um, than the Gentileschi, Mary Magdalene and Ecstasy. Um, you know, it's almost the difference between like a little sun in the Gentileschi and just this like dark, deep blood red in the Caravaggio. Um, and so I just think those colors lend very, very different tonal valences to, to either one. Yeah, that's really interesting. On a different note, um, how and why did this painting become a fascination for you? Yeah, it's, you know, it's funny you ask that because this painting has been my laptop background for like 10 years at this point. Wow. <laughs> I just haven't changed it this entire time. Um, I think growing up a religious person, particularly um, a religious femme and a Black woman, I think that I have always had this fascination, particularly with Christianity, with the coexistence of darkness and light. And so I was always curious about sin in this way and how sin could be titillating or exciting, because of course, whatever you're not supposed to do, <laughs> you know, as a kid, yeah. is exciting to you. And so when I learned about the ecstatic, um, both in the religious context, but also in terms of just the general feeling of like overwhelming joy and and being bowled over by feeling in general and bowled over by emotion. I was excited by it because I feel like a lot of the portrayals I see of ecstasy 
are that overwhelming joy, but there's also a sadness to it and a depletion to it. And ecstasy is scary. I mean, I, I talk a little yeah. bit about Julian of Norwich in the piece, um, who was one of my favorite mystics. Um, and she, you know, had these visions of God on her deathbed. She thought she was going to die. She got her last rites and everything. And she gets this vision of Jesus and it's terrifying the way she describes it. I mean, like blood from his head yeah, seeping from his head. And, but she was so open to what that might mean. She was, she stared the terrifying vision right in the face and was so um, committed to the way that that might lead her to salvation. And that was so thrilling to me because I think that, being able to embrace the dark and the light in that way um, and to recognize that awe is both joy, but also fear. Um, I was always interested in being told that I should fear God because that was something that was exciting to me in some dark way. <laughs> I guess I was just a dark little kid. Um, but so that is exactly my obsession with ecstasy is that the coexistence of that dark and light together Um and just being able to find joy within, you know, this terror, um, even thinking about like fear and trembling and um, yeah. that's, that's always been really exciting to me. So to find the painting um, in an art history class, I was like, oh, this is it, you know, this is exciting to me. So, yeah. And had you never written about it before? I had never written about it. I had um, for years taken notes on it. And this is the first time I ever let myself write about it. And actually senior year in undergrad, um, I was assigned Marjorie Kemp, who is another mystic and also Julian of Norwich. And there is really where my obsession with ecstasy began. Um, and so when I found this painting, you know, named after that feeling, I was like, okay, I, I'm, I have to start taking notes on this. I'm not going to write about it yet. And I was scared because I don't write about visual culture very often. Um, but yeah, this was my first time really diving into it. And I, I do hope to explore her work more and, and some of her, her contemporaries as well. Yeah. And sort of going back to what you were saying about recent scholarship, sort of rescuing her from you know, being buried in history. Mm -hmm. I guess like this being kind of a subversive proto-feminist work. Um, yeah. Can you talk about how she's maybe been cited or referenced as an influence by more contemporary artists? I mean, I know that there have been very recent exhibitions of her work, um, but let me, th I'm trying to think of any contemporary artists that might have any visual references or clear influence from her. It's more like an art historical excavation type period, like being put into these exhibitions. Possibly. I think portraiture has taken a really interesting turn. Um, like right now I'm thinking of Jordan Castile, for example, um, painter, and just the way that portraying women or femmes in portraiture has shifted throughout time. And um, I think that a painter like Jordan Castile might 
I, I don't know whether or not she would cite Gentileschi as an influence, but the idea of bold portraits of women and femmes and um, being in the foreground and not sort of so um, siloed, like you said before, I think there's definitely a clear trajectory from a, a person like Gentileschi who had the boldness to put women characters and figures in the foreground rather than the background. Yeah. And was there was there anything like you couldn't really ex explore in the piece that you would have liked to? Um, I think that I want to do more with the sort of unseeable room because speaking of foreground and background um, and the idea that like the image of the person is like the sole um, and crucial element of the painting. I think one thing that's very different about Rubin's portrayal and Gentileschi's portrayal um, is that, you know, in Rubin's, you've got the angels, you've got a whole scene set, you've got a landscape. Whereas in the Gentileschi, it's just Mary Magdalene in this, you know, she's clearly in a chair, but this, like the setting is completely uh, illegible. And I'm really interested about what that could mean. Um, and the Caravaggio is similar in terms of the the orientation of the portrait, but I'm curious about what that room could be um, and how we read portraits that are without situation in this way, um, which I think is very common for portraiture, but is interesting with a, a figure like this who is always almost placed in some sort of situation that's very legible, you know, similar visual markers. Okay, we've got the angels, you know, <laughs> we've got this like gorgeous vista in the background, right? So what does it mean to strip a figure um, with so many significations from that setting? And how do we look at that figure differently when she's the only thing we're seeing? Mm -hmm. Yeah, maybe that can be a follow-up piece. <laughs> maybe. I'm sure Alana would love to work with you again. <laughs> I, I guess to, to end, um, I, I was interested in the uh, the uh, like project you co-founded, a, a, mm -hmm. a journal, mm -hmm. um, Emergent Literary. Would you yeah. like to talk about that a little bit? Sure. Um, so some colleagues and I, uh, colleagues and friends and I um, in 2020 founded Emergent Literary because you know, we saw a need for more spaces for Black and Brown artists to be able to showcase their work. Um, there are some wonderful um, outlets out there, but naturally the landscape is pretty skewed in the favor of uh, white male artists, as we both know. Well, what are so... you talking about? What are you? <laughs> <laughs> what a concept. Yeah. Um, and so I think that we really felt an urgent need to just create, I mean, we called it at the time a living room. We, um, and I'm thinking a lot about literary salons and this way that mm -hmm. people just came together in homes to share art. And that's a lot of the way that um, we thought about it when founding it is how can we all get each other in a room together, whether that's, you know, across space and time, but um, conceptually, how do we put these voices together in a way that showcases Black and Brown work um, and challenges kind of the current landscape? And so um, we're working on issue four right now, which is really awesome. exciting. 
um, almost done. And I can say the title, it's it's called Beatitude, um, which <laughs> is hilarious given that we're talking about ecstasy. <laughs> but, um, you know, there's sort of a thread there, I guess. But yeah, we're, we're really excited about the direction it's going. Um, we have some wonderful editorial interns too that have been working with us and um, submissions are open. So if <laughs> folks- Yeah, I'll drop and- a- I'll drop a link to the website in the show yeah, notes. Yeah, absolutely, absolutely. Um, yeah, but I think that's good. I think, I think you've enlightened us. You've enlightened me. Oh, boy. Um, certainly. <laughs> no, I mean, I don't know. I, I've never heard of Gentileski. Uh, and uh, yeah, really appreciate your time. Thank you. Thank you so much for having me and, and chatting with me. It's been great. Yeah, for sure. No problem. Um, yeah have a great rest of your day (laughs) I'm gonna pause the recording thank you for listening to the Cleveland Review of Books podcast producer A Live of Cleveland's own Moomin Collective graciously provided the music we used for the intro as well as the one you are listening to now we publish reviews, essays, interviews and excerpts online at clereviewofbooks.com about three to four times per week We recommend signing up for our bi-weekly newsletter, a link to which can be found in the show notes as we all adjust to a shifting social media environment. You can also purchase print issues and merch, including hats, totes, and shirts in our online store. I'd also like to shout out all of our amazing editors, including Zach Peckham, Bree DeMonda, Robert Giddings, Alana Pakros, Angelo Maniage, Morgan Ford, Michael Credico, Helen Rauner, Jacob Brueggemann, Philip Harris, Allie Black, Isabel Blakeway Phillips, Eli Scope, and R.A. Washington. See you next time.